Good morning. So that song we just sang, it's a wonderful uh, song summarizing the passage we're going to talk about today, Psalm 42. That kind of fell out of the rotation in recent years, uh, I think, that song, but I think we should bring it back because it's great. Well, I can honestly say that I'm really happy to be here today, to be upright. Uh, I've had some interesting adventures in Healthland the last few months, and uh, I really appreciate the prayers of all of those who prayed for me. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 42, but before that, I want you to just listen as I recite it. There's a beautiful symmetry in this psalm. Um, it alternates between lament on one hand and then praise and affirmation on the other. So I'll illustrate that structure by just kind of changing positions as I move from praise to lament. So the first, let me step over here. So the first, uh, the introduction, the first two verses are an introduction. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of joy, a multitude-keeping festival. Praise. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Lament. My soul, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord com commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. My soul is cast down within me. Did I say this already? My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember, no, excuse me. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a, with a deep wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation, and my God. Let's pray. Father, as we continue in our series on the problem of pain, we ask for your help now as we look at Psalm 42. Use it to comfort and reassure those who struggle to cope with the storms of life. Use it to encourage all of us to build resilience by placing our hope in you, and in your unfailing word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Show of hands, who, who among you has dissected a frog sometime in your past? Well, good. For those who did, it might have been a fascinating exercise or it might have been a traumatizing exercise. But in any case, when the exercise was over, you ended up with a lot of knowledge about frogs, but you also had a dead frog on your hands. This morning we're going to do a little dissection of Psalm 42. 
looking at it from different angles, but the last thing we want is to end up with a lot of knowledge, but a dead frog. This is a beautifully crafted living song, living poem, uh, that can help us tremendously as we face the storms of life. So just a little background on the book of Psalms. Psalms is the prayer book of Israel. Most but not all of the Psalms were written to be sung by choirs. You can get a great background on the Psalms in a nine-minute video from the Bible Project. How many of you are familiar with Bible Project? It's a great source of uh, information about the Bible, overviews, and uh, in this particular nine-minute video, uh, they they um, give a, a comprehensive summary of the Psalms. The completed summary right there looks complicated, but the way they build it with animation and zooming in and out, uh, you can really follow it, and uh, it helps you make sense out of this amazing book of Psalms. Now, if we zoom to the upper right corner of that chart, uh, you'll see that the two main types of Psalms are lament and praise. But often you will find both lament and praise in the same Psalm as we do in Psalm 42 today. Laments are prayers of pain, confusion, or anger, drawing attention to what's wrong in the world. They ask God to do something. So a characteristic lament is, how long, O Lord? Or in the case of Psalm 42 this morning, why are you cast down, O my soul? On the other hand, praise psalms are prayers of joy and celebration, drawing attention to what is good in the world. They often retell a story and they thank God. So a characteristic praise would be, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. As we saw earlier, Psalm 42 has a beautiful symmetry between lament on one hand and then praise on the other. So after an introduction in the first two verses, we see uh, an alternation between cycles of praise and lament with each lament being two verses and each praise being one verse. So let's walk through this psalm, noting the uh, setting of it, the images used in it, and the connections with our own experience, even 3,000 years after it was written. The psalm is attributed to the sons of Korah, as are 10 other psalms. If you're a Bible reader, you'll probably remember the name Korah. Back in Numbers chapter 16, we read the story of his rebellion. Uh, but going back further, Korah is a grandson of Kohath, who was the leader of one of the three main divisions in the Levite tribe, and their responsibility was to transport and care for the tabernacle. But as you remember, Korah and his co-conspirators challenged Moses' authority uh, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, and uh, God dealt with them dramatically. But... Not all of Korah's family uh, were, were lost in that, so his son survived, grandson survived. And so we see, for example, the prophet Samuel was a prominent member of the line of Korah. And then in David's kingdom, even later, we see sons of Korah emerging as warriors, but also as worship leaders in the tabernacle. So this is a psalm from the sons of Korah. Verses 1 and 2 introduce the psalm. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? As a deer, deer pants for flowing streams. Picture a deer in hot, dry Palestine. 
perhaps after being chased for a long time by a predator. That deer can only think of one thing at that moment, cold, clear water. Nothing else matters at that moment. Have you come to the conclusion that what you need most of all, like that deer needs the cold, clear water, that what you need is God himself? When you're in physical pain, emotional pain, or sad, lonely, you might think that what you need is pain relief, or good friends, or a more interesting and exciting life, or maybe even a stiff drink. Uh, but what is, but is that really what you most deeply want and need? For the psalmist here, the experience of isolation and rejection and discouragement led him to conclude that what he most needed was to be in God's presence with God's people. Can you remember deeply meaningful times of worship, like we have this morning, where you were being with the people, you were sensing God's presence, you're sensing his goodness. Do you thirst for that, or do you thirst for exciting experiences, distractions, or two-second pleasures like the marshmallow peeps I like to eat at Easter? I'm a little embarrassed to admit that, but there you go. Have you prioritized being with God over doing for God? In your heart of hearts is being with God, seeing his face, the only thing you really desire. Remember that song we just sang, you alone are my heart's desire. Are you convinced that that should be your heart's desire? You're probably not there yet. I'm not. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Let's just look at a few other English renditions of that particular verse to kind of draw out the nuance of it. So I just read for you the ESV version. Another version, the Christian Standard Bible says, in your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand, there are eternal pleasures. Another version, in your presence is total celebration. Beautiful things are always in your right hand. In your presence is unbounded joy. In your right hand, eternal delight. I experience absolute joy in your presence. You always give me sheer delight. And finally, being with you is to be full of joy. In your right hand, there is happiness forever. Pastor John Piper says it this way, nothing is even conceivably better than Psalm 1611. Nothing is fuller than full. Nothing is longer than forever. Fullness means completely satisfying. And forevermore means those pleasures never stop. If your greatest idea of pleasure is Disneyland, or maybe the equivalent of Disneyland for you, would it work to say, at God's right hand, there is Disneyland forevermore? Of course not. Disneyland would get pretty old pretty fast, wouldn't it? But God is the only being who's able to give us pleasure that never diminishes never gets old, never wears out. If you really believe this to be true, how could you want anything more or anything else? But how can you come to really believe this? For one thing, you come to believe it by preaching it to yourself regularly, which we will talk about a little more in a couple of minutes. 
When I was in the depths of depression years ago, you could have offered me a billion dollars or a round-the-world trip or something of that nature. And it would have meant nothing to me because I didn't have the emotional capacity to enjoy it in any, anyway. Depression can do that to you. But it can actually help you by driving you to the conclusion that if you have God, you do have everything. And if you don't have him, ultimately, you have nothing. Consider this equation. Nothing plus Jesus equals everything. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. That's the attitude expressed by this psalm and many others. It's the thought that the only thing that ultimately matters is being close to God. As we celebrated two weeks ago at Christmas, God came close to us in Jesus so that we could be enabled to come close to him. John Ortberg puts it this way, on the cross is the ultimate paradox. God experiencing the absence of God. God experiencing the absence of God so that he can draw close to us in our loss and grief and even in our God forsakenness. When we receive his gift of forgiveness and embrace Jesus as master and king, the barrier between us and God is removed and we can be close to God wherever we are. So the psalm begins with a declaration that God is all I really want, God is all I really need, but there's a problem. I'm not experiencing the presence of God. I feel cut off, exiled, isolated. So lament number one, starting in verse three, says, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. The psalmist is saying, I have no appetite. My tears are my only food. I'm among people who don't care about God. They're just rubbing salt in my wounds. Yet I can remember happier days when I was joyfully participating in worship with the people of God. Again, can you think back to times of group worship? when you were deeply moved by the reality and the presence and the goodness of God. As we'll see, the psalmist, the writer of this song, has been dislocated. He's removed from Jerusalem, which was the center of Israel's religious life. God's presence back then was clearly identified with the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem. So to be far away from Jerusalem and isolated from the place and the people of God prompted a deep sense of separation from God himself. Now depression is a, is a theme in this song, in this psalm. It was a prevalent condition 3,000 years ago when the psalm was written, and it's a prevalent condition today. Depression manifests in many different ways, many different degrees. When you see one depressed person, you haven't seen them all. You've just seen one depressed person because no two are exactly alike. Now I want to take a little side trip here to talk about depression because we see it here in this first lament. So we'll come back to our text after I talk about depression a bit. So what is depression? Well, what is a tongue depressor? It's a flat stick 
You've all, you're all acquainted with it. That's pressed down on your tongue, flattening it in order, it, it in order to uh, examine the throat. When our emotions are pressed down, flattened out, and unresponsive, we call that depression. Depression is a clinical mood disorder. It's different from short-term melancholy, sadness, or unhappiness. Depression, clinically, is a long-term or recurring condition. It's considered a clinical disorder when sad feelings keep the affected individual from actually performing activities because they've lost interest in them or just feel overwhelmed. Even overwhelmed at the thought of brushing your teeth or making your bed or washing a couple dishes. You're just overwhelmed. Typical symptoms of depression besides that can include body aches and pains, lethargy, feeling hopeless, chronic fatigue, inability to enjoy the pleasures of everyday life, and sometimes even contemplating self-harm. Sometimes the cause is quite obvious, but in many cases the causes are complicated and therefore hard to identify. Depression is closely related to three other D words, namely despondency, despair, and discouragement. Despondency means feeling or showing profound hopelessness, dejection, discouragement, or gloom. Despair is the complete loss or absence of hope. Discouragement is a loss of confidence or enthusiasm, dispiritedness, losing heart. So all of these terms are related. There's a lot of overlap, but um, they're not exactly the same, and so they all help us to understand this idea of a depression. So when you're going through it, the last thing you're going to worry about is what, what label to put on it, but these words can help us understand the condition better. For our purposes, we're going to just stick with the term depression. Uh, but keep in mind that it has many different causes, has different degrees of length and different degrees of severity. So what are some types of circumstances that can lead to depression? I've got a list of a few of them here. Uh, one would be grief. Grief often leads into depression for, for, a, for, a, for a time. And that's a very natural, normal response to grief. Uh, loss of a loved one, loss of a meaningful relationship, physical suffering, acute or chronic pain, a life-threatening illness or weakness, loss of career aspirations, maybe being stuck in a life-draining job, locked in an unresolvable marriage or other relationship, a relationship that is life-draining rather than life-giving, blocked by circumstances from living the life you desire. Feeling hated or misunderstood by others and not being able to change the situation. Chronic dissatisfaction, unhappiness, sadness, bitterness, self-pity, envy, and so on. Or maybe you're a parent of a biological child or an adopted child or foster children and just feeling overwhelmed and exhausted by the children's needs and demands. Now after that list, if I were to ask a for a show of hands, for those who can relate to one or more of these circumstances, um, I'm sure we see a lot of hands go up. Life is hard. Life is messy. Life is painful. Some of the pain is self-inflicted. Some of it comes from other people or circumstances. Some of it comes from how our bodies and brains are wired genetically. I've reached out to a few people in our congregation recently just 
to listen to their stories about depression. I really appreciate their honesty and vulnerability in sharing that with me. I also had a talk about depression with Sylvain Penn, who's a, who's a Christian counselor. Some of you remember him as a member of GBC and an elder at this church. I think it can be encouraging and healing for us to be able to talk about these things with one another, to share our life experience with one another in this way. It definitely works against the isolation that is so much a part of depression. You, your tendency is to really withdraw from others, which just makes things worse. I first experienced depression as a freshman in high school. That was a long time ago, although I didn't understand what was happening at the time. My family was in upheaval due to my dad experiencing recurring bouts of major depression. And so uh, at one time, uh, my parents uh, had all us kids stay with friends in the Portland area while, while my parents went down to California for two or three weeks to a, a Christian counseling center. Well. I began to withdraw. I, uh, my, my grades in school plummeted. I was normally a, a well-behaved kid with good grades. Grades plummeted. I didn't participate in class. And finally, this was at a Christian school, finally the principal called me into his office. He had been alerted by my math teacher, you know, there's something wrong with Dave. Maybe you should talk to him. So I was scared to death being called to the principal's office. I mean, this guy, this principal was a really intimidating guy anyway. And I had never been called to the principal's office for misbehavior. So uh, I don't remember exactly what was said in that conversation, but I, he was sympathetic. He, he really cared. He wanted to know how I was doing. And though I don't remember what was said, I remember that I kind of snapped out of it after that. I just kind of pulled myself together. My grades went back up. And I really didn't experience symptoms of depression for the next 30 years. But... 30 years later, several months after we escaped from a cult-like church uh, environment, I began having physical fatigue during those months, but then one day, the pressure cooker sprang a leak, and uh, I just shut down, going into a major depressive episode that lasted for several months. I was basically paralyzed. I couldn't work, I couldn't drive, I couldn't go to church, I couldn't even have a conversation. Aside from a couple of short aftershock episodes of depression, um, I've been fine ever since, which is over 20 years now. In my case, it was pretty clear what led to my breakdown. When circumstances changed, the depression eventually resolved itself. Does that mean I wouldn't be susceptible to depression again if, if I experienced a crushing loss? No, not at all. For many depression sufferers, however, the, the situation is not as clear-cut as that. And that can cause the condition to be more persistent and more resistant to treatment. What we call depression today can easily be seen in the Bible and in other historical characters. Think of uh, Job, probably the, the poster boy for depression. Think of other um, prophets in the Bible. Uh, for example, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah. Think of John the Baptist in prison when he was having doubts about who Jesus was. And think of Jesus himself. He exhibited symptoms of depression and anxiety. By the way, I'd like to recommend a book I just read this week, and I'm reading it aloud to Becky right now. It's written by John Ortberg, and it's titled, God is Closer Than You Think. Uh, Ortberg writes in a really entertaining, captivating way, and I, uh, 
in, in this case, it really illuminates the subject that we're talking about today. God is closer than you think. Now, more recently in history, you've heard Charles Spurgeon's name. He was the 19th century so-called Prince of Preachers, and he's been quoted from this pulpit a number of times. Well, despite his tremendous influence, he exper experienced recurring episodes of crippling depression that kept him in bed for long periods of time. A number of factors contributed to his depression. When he was 22, he was also already a well-known pastor and preacher in London. So one day, one morning, uh, when he was preaching to thousands of people, someone in the audience yelled, fire! And there was a panic stampede that resulted in eight people being killed and 28 people being severely injured. That really did a number on him. That had a deep and lasting impact on his mental health. And then a few years later, in his early 30s, he entered a season of physical pain that would stay with him the rest of his life. He suffered from a burning kidney inflammation known as Bright's disease. He also um, suffered from gout and rheumatism and neuritis. Uh, all of that, all those physical problems kept him out of the pulpit one third of the time. And then added to that, just overwork. I mean, some of you who have looked at his sermons uh, know that he just had a tremendous output. But so he was a hard worker, but the stress of all that and then public conflicts that he had with critics of his, all of that contributed, I think, to uh, his emotional struggles. A little earlier in 18th century England, a well-known poet and a hymn writer named William Cooper, doesn't look like Cooper, but that's how it's pronounced, uh, he was plagued by recurring depression and insanity. He attempted suicide several times, and, and at times he was committed to mental institutions. He was befriended by a pastor and former slave trader named John Newton. John Newton might ring a bell for you. He's the author of the hymn Amazing Grace. Well, Newton faithfully ministered to his friend Cooper throughout the years of his affliction. And together, the two of them wrote over 300 hymns. Some of those hymns are still sung today, not just Amazing Grace, but some others. And uh, they published those hymns as, a, as the only hymnal in 1779. Now, let's get back to Psalm 42 and look at the first praise and affirmation. We've already looked at the first lament. Verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Cast down, that's a good match for depression. And turmoil, in that verse, is a good synonym for anxiety. Anxiety accompanies depression in about half of all cases of depression. That was certainly my experience during my struggles years ago, anxiety and depression. So this is what we mean when we talk about preaching to yourself. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? You grab yourself by the lapels and you say, Self, let's put things in perspective here. Here's what I know about reality and about God. But let me ask you, how much preaching material do you have in your mental file cabinet? When I was on the operating table three and a half weeks ago, three and, yeah, three and a half weeks ago, about to undergo a heart valve replacement, I had a chance to road test, verse 5 here. I felt very helpless, surrounded by a pit crew of eight medical professionals and a whole bunch of equipment. I didn't know for sure whether I would wake up from the anesthesia. But the last thing I said to myself, because I had been studying this psalm, 
The last thing I said before they put the mask over my face was, Dave, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Whether I woke up in the hospital or in the presence of Jesus, I was going to praise him. I was preaching to myself. What does that phrase, hope in God, mean? Well, the Hebrew word that's used here for hope contains the idea of waiting with confident expectation. It's not wishful thinking, as in, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, or I hope the Blazers win their next game. In fact, it's the opposite of wishful thinking. It's the confident expectation that takes God at his word. So we need to stock our minds, our mental file cabinets, with as much preaching material as we can so that we can pull out what we need to fit the occasion. I'm so thankful for the heritage of hymn singing that I was given growing up in the church. As a result, I have a mental file cabinet full of truth about God from all those hymns I learned growing up. I was also encouraged to memorize scripture growing up. And I've continued to add to my self-preaching resource files through my life, as in memorizing Psalm 42 recently. Now, let's move to lament number two. That starts in verse six. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So this lament gives us some more clues about the psalmist's situation. He seems to be somehow exiled in the far north of Israel, the land of Jordan and of Mount Hermon, way up there in the north, the, the land of the Jordan headwaters. Notice how far away he is from Jerusalem, way down there at the bottom. That's the center of Israel's worship, and he's cut off from that. Here in Oregon, we're very familiar with snow-covered mountains and roaring waterfalls. Usually when you mention Israel, you don't think about those things, do you? But the psalmist mentions the land of Jordan and Hermon. The Jordan River doesn't look very impressive to us, although you can actually go rafting on it. There's a Jordan rafting adventures place in northern Israel. But of course, the Jordan River carries huge biblical and historical significance. The Jordan River is fed by springs and by a runoff from Mount Hermon. You don't think of ski resorts in Israel, but there it is, Mount Hermon. So the author is somewhere up in that area of waterfalls, snow runoff, the Jordan. So here you see three of the waterfalls. And even though they aren't as imposing as some waterfalls you may have seen, you still can get the idea of just imagining being next to or even under a roaring, pounding waterfall. This is not a Hallmark postcard nice image of waterfalls. You can't hear. If you're right next to or under a waterfall, you can't hear, you can't think. You can't protect yourself from the pounding of it. And deep calls to deep, it says in this verse. That makes me think, think about times in my depression when I would cry out to God from deep in my soul, not even being able to form the words into a coherent prayer. I find some comfort in the company of Asaph who wrote Psalm 77. That says, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. That guy knew depression. 
When I think of breakers and waves, I think of Waimea Bay on the north shore of Oahu. Uh, Becky and I were on an anniversary trip there 42 years ago. Um, and we had enjoyed some body surfing in the gentle waves of Waikiki Beach. So uh, we didn't pay much attention to those warning signs at Waimea Bay that said, experience surfers only and um, beware, you know, of the dangerous surf. So that was a bad idea not to pay attention. <laughs> First wave I caught, you know, it just picked me up like a rag doll, spun me around, filled my swim trunks with sand, and deposited me upside down on the floor of the ocean. You can see YouTube videos of huge waves there, absolutely devouring swimmers and surfers. So that's a picture of your breakers and your waves going over me. And under a roaring waterfall, both of those pictures are pictures of being overwhelmed by pain, grief, discouragement, anxiety, and depression. Notice, however, that the psalmist says your, break, uh, your waterfalls, your breakers and waves. Nothing lies outside of God's providence, his purposeful um, oversight of everything that happens. So in that sense, the waterfalls, breakers, and waves are God's waterfalls, breakers, and waves. He could prevent them. He could remove them. But because he is both great and good, he allows the painful consequences of a fallen, broken world to play out, while at the same time working in everything for the ultimate good of those who love him. We can be sure, too, that Jesus felt God's waterfalls pounding down on him as he faced his upcoming arrest and execution. All of God's breakers and waves went over Jesus as he cried out from the cross, Why have you forsaken me? Yet he endured it all so that he could be our rock and our salvation. That brings us to praise number two, verse eight. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. In spite of everything we're going through, God's steadfast love is constantly flowing toward us, day and night, 24-7. Even in the dark night of the soul, when we cannot vocalize a psalm, song or a prayer, he is with us. Romans 8.16 tells us, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Think back to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. They certainly must have experienced their share of depression. But look at Psalm 137. We read there, For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors, mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And yet, in those hopeless circumstances, the Lord's steadfast love and his song were with those exiles. Lament number three in verse nine, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? In verse 9, notice that little phrase, I say to God, my rock. That's critical. I'm reminded of Jesus' story about the wise man who built his house on a rock foundation and a foolish man who built his house on sand. A house built on a gospel foundation will withstand the storms of life. 
whether physical storms, emotional, financial, relational, or otherwise. If you didn't see Anthony's um, article in our weekly email this past week, you should take a look. It's, it's all about this truth of God being our rock. I thought it was really good. But you don't build on rock by simply attending church, giving some money, serving in the kids' ministry, or leading a small group. Those things are good and important, but prominent Christian leaders who do far more than that are toppling in disgrace every month, showing that they haven't been building on rock. So if that's not the same thing as building on rock, what is? When Jesus called his disciples, this was his strategy. Mark 3.14. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. In other words, he invited them to be with him in close, continuous relationship with him so that he could form them and equip them to go out and teach his message. They needed to be with him in order to become like him so that they could go out and do what he did. Now, that's the basic formula for disciple-making. And it's the formula for developing resilience to endure the storms of depression, grief, disappointment, and pain that we will encounter sooner or later. Why have you forgotten me? That's not so much an accusation as it is a cry of desolation, expressing the anguish of feeling abandoned. It should remind us of a similar cry, why have you forsaken me, found in Psalm 22 and repeated by Jesus on the cross. I recently read an article titled, The One Question We Never Have to Ask God. I won't leave you in suspense. It sounds like, kind of like a clickbait title, doesn't it? The one thing. Well, what is it? Well, I won't leave you in suspense. The question referred to was why. That's the question we shouldn't ask God. And while the author makes some good points, I take, need to take issue with the overall conclusion. To his credit, this, this author wants to discourage believers <clears throat> from asking God these kind of God-blaming questions. Why is this happening to me? Why has God not healed my terminally ill child? Why is God allowing me to struggle financially? Why did God allow my spouse to be unfaithful to me? Or we might ask self-blaming questions. And those in the church who have experienced depression have often encountered these kind of um, messages in one way or another. What sin have I not confessed or repented of? Where is my faith lacking? What lesson is God trying to teach me? Often these kind of questions just add, I mean, there might be something appropriate in them, but often they just add to the depressed person's burden of guilt and shame. In other words, this author says, we feel we are wronged or in the dark, and that somehow God owes us an answer as to why. And I agree, that's not the best type of why question we should ask. Unhelpfully, though, this author concludes, if we really want to know why, perhaps we already know the answer. The answer is sin, and the answer to sin is Jesus and Christ alone. Well, it's hard to argue with the truth of that, but if I were a deeply depressed person and someone said to me, well, the answer to your why question is sin, and the answer to sin is Jesus, I don't think that would be very helpful. There's truth in it, but it's not really helpful. It's too broad to be of much help to someone who is truly suffering from depression or anxiety. More helpful is the final statement by this author in his article. You may not know the why, but you know the who. 
and he will see you through it. That's essentially what the psalmist is saying here. When he says, I say to God, my rock, he is uttering this emotional why, but he's also resting on the solid rock of God's character and faithfulness. Praise number three, verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. If that sounds familiar, it's, a, it's the refrain. It's an exact repeat of verse 5. So what can we learn from Psalm 42? I want to leave you with uh, four suggestions as to what we can learn and then a couple of thoughts to take away. Suggestion number one. Depression is a common human experience with many causes. Though our choices may factor in, it's, it's not inherently sinful. Depression in itself is not sinful. And we should not approach it in ourselves or in others with blame or with trite admonitions. Number two, God wants us to pour out our hearts to him. When we are in pain or when we're feeling he is absent. When we're not even able to speak a prayer, he knows how we are feeling. But we also need to stay connected to other believers uh, who can embody the faithful presence of God to us. Sometimes just sitting with a person uh, as Job's friends, you remember, they, for the first seven days, I think, when his friends came to visit, they just sat with him. They just offered their presence. Number three, we can't depression-proof our lives, but we can build resilience as we stay close to Jesus, letting him reform our minds uh, and our characters so that uh, we will be equipped to do his work in the world. And number four, every day, you are making decisions to build on rock or on sand. We can grow in our capacity to hope in God as we feed on his word and acquire more resources for preaching the gospel to ourselves. Two thoughts to take away. First, ask yourself, have I determined for myself that nearness to God is my highest good? You'll find this idea in many places throughout scripture. It's all over the place. Here are just a couple. Psalm 73, 28. Being united with God is my highest good. I have made the Almighty Lord my refuge. Psalm 84, 10. One day in your courtyards is better than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather stand in the entrance to my God's house than live inside wicked people's homes. So you may not be there yet, determining that God is your highest good. I'm not there yet. But do you want to be there? Or as one person said to Jesus, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Do you want to want that as your highest good? Another takeaway question, am I hoping in God? Am I building on God, my rock? Am I adopting habits and practices that will draw me closer to him daily? If you need help with this, Reach out to someone whose counsel you value. I'm going to give you just a few moments to ponder these thoughts, and then we'll pray. Father, thank you for being a God who understands our pain, not just intellectually from a distance, but because you have actually experienced these emotional struggles. Help us to place our hope in you when life is hard. 
Teach us to build resilience by meditating on your character and your promises. May we not thirst for counterfeit joys. May we want to want you alone, your presence, as our ultimate joy and treasure, both now and forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.